Good morning, and welcome to the Lemonade Incorporated Fourth Quarter 2020 Earnings Conference Call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. Please note this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to L. Wisner-Levy, Vice President of Communications. Please go ahead. Good morning and welcome to Lemonade's fourth quarter 2020 earnings call. My name is Yael Wisner-Levy and I am the Vice President of Communications at Lemonade. Joining me today to discuss our results are Daniel Schreiber, CEO and co-founder, Shai Winninger, President, COO and co-founder, and Tim Bixby, our Chief Financial Officer. A letter to shareholders covering the company's fourth quarter 2020 financial results is available on our investor relations website, investor.lemonade.com. Before we begin, I would like to remind you that management's remarks on this call may contain forward-looking statements within the meaning of the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Actual results may differ materially from those indicated by these forward-looking statements as a result of various important factors including those discussed in the risk factors section of our final prospectus filed with the SEC on January the 14th, 2021, pursuant to Rule 424B4 and our other filings with the SEC. Any forward-looking statements made on this call represent our views only as of today, and we undertake no obligation to update them. We will be referring to certain non-GAAP financial measures on today's call, such as adjusted EBITDA and adjusted gross profit, which we believe may be important to investors to assess our operating performance. Reconciliations of these non-GAAP financial measures to the most directly comparable GAAP financial measures are included in our letter to shareholders. Our letter to shareholders also includes information about our key operating metrics, including a definition of each metric, why each is useful to investors, and how we use each to monitor and manage our business. With that, I'll turn the call over to Daniel, who will begin with a few opening remarks. Daniel? Good morning. Our fourth quarter saw continued progress along our key performance indicators, evidencing both quantitative and qualitative advances. As compared to Q4 2019, we saw our enforced premium grow by 87%, our adjusted gross profit by 86%, and our losses per dollar of gross earned premium roughly halved. Tim will elaborate on all our numbers shortly, but as strong as these metrics may be, the qualitative changes run deeper than the numbers suggest. The main thing I'd like to highlight is that we have fully transitioned from a monoline business, as we were at our IPO a short few months ago, to offering three highly differentiated products that span property insurance for homes, to health insurance for pets, to life insurance for humans. During this transition, we've learned several things of note. The first is that our brand and technology are highly extensible. If there was any question about whether these could extend to higher value and higher complexity products, there really no longer is. They do. The second is that our customers want to buy multiple products from Lemonade. About half of our pet policies and half of our life policies have been bought by existing Lemonade customers with far-reaching implications for lifetime value and dollar retention. The third is that new products create new on-ramps to Lemonade. In the fourth quarter, more than 40% of our sales and new product sales were not renters' policies, demonstrating that our high-value products are not only destinations for upsells, but destinations in their own right. They are entry points to Lemonade, and this expands our total available market while lowering our customer acquisition costs. In general, our customer journey has progressed from a relatively linear roadmap where customers join as young renters and graduate to become homeowners to a far more multidimensional map with an array of on-ramps and intersections. This is great news for both customer acquisition costs and lifetime value of our customers. It's a level of symbiosis that we theorized about, that we aspired to, and it's heartening to see it play out even better in practice than the theory had projected. 
All these learnings have emboldened us to continue down this road, indeed to double down on it, and we plan to keep launching products until we have catered to the totality of our customers' needs. I say we plan to, but in truth, we're beyond just planning. We haven't shared this before, but we actually have more people working on our next major yet-to-be-announced product today than we have working on our homeowners or our renters or our pet or our life products. I look forward to the day in the not-too-distant future when I'll be able to share the reason for my excitement with a little less cloak and dagger. In the meantime, a few more points worth highlighting. One is that our 2020 annual loss ratio was 71% as compared to 79% in the prior year. We've now seen an incredibly healthy loss ratio for the year, as well as healthy loss ratios across all four quarters and all four seasons, affording confidence that even as we grow fast, we are growing profitably. Of course, we will see occasional spikes in our loss ratio, though our reinsurance will mute the impact of these on the bottom line. And in this context, I want to say a few words about the Texas freeze in Q1. When Q3 saw unprecedented wildfires and hurricanes, we took pride in the fact that our cautious underwriting meant that the impact of these catastrophes on our book of business was disproportionately light. Now, hurricanes and wildfires do follow a probability distribution, and that allowed us to manage our exposures there. The Texas freeze that happened this month was different. It was a black swan event. Few models predicted this unique weather pattern, and none predicted the massive loss of power that the freeze engendered, nor the massive loss of drinking water that the loss of power triggered. These compounding catastrophes came without warning and impacted the entire state, a state where a quarter of our customers live. For these reasons, it quickly became the largest catastrophe we as a company have ever contended with, and it tested both our people and our financial model in important ways. I'm happy to tell you that both held up exceedingly well. We will provide a lot more color and detail when we report our Q1 results, but I'll share that we saw many thousands of claims in a space of just a few days and that our team worked night and day and successfully remained incredibly responsive and helpful despite the extraordinary surge. Being there for our customers in such trying circumstances is exactly the promise of Lemonade, and I'm proud that we were able to live up to this promise. As for our financial model, it too weathered the storm very well. While our gross loss ratio will spike in Q1, our reinsurance structures are playing their designated role, and as our guidance for Q1 indicates, we do not expect the Texas freeze to have a material adverse impact on our financials in 2021. And with that, let me hand over to Shai for some product updates. Shai, over to you. Thank you, Daniel. Last time we spoke, I mentioned that unlike previous products, Lemonade Life will be launching gradually before actively marketing it to new customers. I'm happy to report that so far, the stage launch is looking good. Although numbers are modest, this is by design. Sales are in line with our expectations while conversion rates are ahead. We're dedicating the first half of the year to learn, improve, and optimize Lemonade Life. And as anxious as we are to accelerate its growth, we remain true to our customer-centric principles and will only start scaling it once we're satisfied it provides a magical experience that's fast, transparent, and easy to understand. On other fronts, we're happy with the rate in which our non-renters products are growing, with homeowners and pet representing more than 40% of our new business in the last quarter. This is in addition to the very strong cross-sales of these products to existing Lemonade customers. Cross-sales are an important part of our strategy because they fundamentally change the unit economics for the better. For example, a renter who also buys pet coverage generates a 4x increase in premium and dramatically improves the LTV to CAC ratio as the second purchase comes at nearly zero cost. New products also help us grow our geographical footprint, 
And I'm happy to report that Lemonade is now available with at least one product in all 50 U.S. states. And as Daniel mentioned, we are working intensely on our next product. We're not yet ready to name it, but I do want to share everyone's excitement about this major project, which may well be the most significant launch we've ever done. And with that, let me hand over to Tim for a bit more detail around our financial results and outlook. Tim? Great, thanks, Sean. I'll give a bit more color on our Q4 results, as well as expectations for the first quarter and the full year 2021, and then we'll take your questions. We had another strong quarter of growth, driven by additions of new customers, as well as a continued increase in premium per customer. Inforce premium grew 87% in Q4, as compared to Q4 in the prior year, to $213 million. We believe that this metric captures the full scope of our top-line growth before the impact of reinsurance, and regardless of the timing of customer acquisition during the quarter. Premium per customer increased 20% versus the prior year to $213. This increase was driven by a combination of increased value of policies over time, as well as mixed shift towards higher value homeowner and now pet policies. Again, roughly two-thirds of the growth in premium per customer in Q4 was driven by product mix shift, including cross-sales, and the remaining one-third from increased coverage levels and pricing. Gross earned premium in Q4 increased 92% as compared to the prior year to $50 million, in line with the increase in enforced premium. Our gross loss ratio was 73% for Q4, in line with 73% in the fourth quarter of 2019, while our full year 2020 gross loss ratio was 71% versus 79% for the full year 2019. We continue to expect our gross loss ratio will vary over time within a target range for annual loss ratios of below 75%, with occasional short-term results slightly outside this range. Operating expenses, excluding loss and loss adjustment expense, increased just 10% in Q4 as compared to the prior year, with sales and marketing expense again lower slightly as compared to the prior year due to continued improvement in our marketing efficiency. We also continue to add new Lemonade team members in all areas of the company in support of customer and premium growth and both current and future product launches and thus saw increases in each of the other expense lines. Our global headcount roughly doubled versus the prior year to 567, with a greater growth rate in customer-facing departments and our product development teams. We continue to operate primarily under a work-from-home structure. It's worth noting that our Tel Aviv office has made good progress in getting many of our team members back to the office. And we anticipate that most of our team members will return to our other offices before year-end. Net loss was $33.9 million in Q4 as compared to the $32.7 million we reported in the fourth quarter of 2019, with a notably larger customer and enforced premium base, while adjusted EBITDA loss was $29.7 million in Q4 as compared to $31.4 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. Our cash, cash equivalents, and total investments balance ended the quarter at $578 million, reflecting primarily the net proceeds from our July public offering of approximately $335 million, partially offset by the use of cash for operations of $91.7 million since year-end 2019. As a reminder, we closed a successful secondary offering in January generating additional total net proceeds of approximately $640 million. And this is, of course, a Q1 2021 event not yet reflected in the financials. With these goals and metrics in mind, I'll now outline our specific financial expectations for the first quarter and for the full year, 2021. For the first quarter, we expect in-force premium at March 31 of between 241 and 246 million dollars. Gross earned premium between 53.5 and 54.5 million. Revenue between 21.5 and 22.5 million dollars. And an adjusted EBITDA loss of between 43 million dollars and 40 million dollars. We expect stock-based compensation expense of approximately 5 million dollars 
and capital expenditures of approximately $2 million in a quarter. And for the full year 2021, we expect enforced premium at December 31 of between 372 and $378 million. Gross earned premium between 270 and $275 million. Revenue between 114 and $117 million. And adjusted EBITDA loss between 173 and $163 million. Stock-based compensation expense of approximately $25 million and capital expenditures of approximately $8 million in the year. As a reminder, please note that GAAP accounting rules are such that seeded premiums are excluded from GAAP revenue. As a result of the change in our reinsurance structure, effective last July 1st, to a significant proportional reinsurance structure, our year-over-year revenue and gross margin comparisons are not directly comparable. Accordingly, we publish in-force premium and gross earned premium as metrics that we believe are useful to analysts and investors because each captures the overall growth trajectory of the business before the impact of reinsurance. Thanks so much for joining our third quarterly review. As a public company, we do appreciate your interest and support. And with that, I would like to turn the call back over to Daniel to address some questions from our shareholders. Daniel? Thanks, Tim. It's been a great pleasure for us to be able to engage with our retail investors through podcasts, YouTube, uh, Twitter, other social media channels. And what we found is a community that is highly engaged, highly inquisitive, um, and highly supportive. We've engaged with smart people who really do sweat the details and are strategic and long-term in their thinking. These are investors after our own heart, and we feel privileged that so many of them are also our customers. And they often act as strong advocates for our products and indeed for our company. Um, Our investor community has also been a source of great ideas for us, and it's um, in response to a couple of tweets that came at us from our retail investors that we signed on with Say Technologies, so that these investors, no less than our friendly Wall Street analysts, will be able to ask us questions on these calls. And this quarter, um, the first quarter that we're trying this, we received close to 100 questions, and the same investor community helped us prioritize them by upvoting the ones that seemed most pressing to them. Looking at the five to seven most upvoted questions, um, we see three central themes that I'll try and address. The first is one of global expansion. Neil F. asked the most upvoted question, which focused on our plans for the EU, and questions by Arias uh, about the Asia-Pacific and by Jordan about the UK were also very popular. So that's kind of one bucket, if you like. The second theme is about new products. Jasma asked about our future product plans, while Neil R. asked about the changes in car insurance with car OEMs, most notably Tesla, entering the space. And the third most upvoted question was from Emil, and um, it asked, what we think of crypto and when we plan, or whether we plan to invest in Bitcoin. So let me address these um, three um, sets of, of questions in turn. The first, as I said, was about global expansion. Um, in our shareholder letter last quarter, um, we wrote the following sentence. While we are steadily enlarging our European footprint, it should be noted that our investments are lopsided in the direction of the U.S. by design and will remain that way for the next while. Okay, so let me explain um, and add a little bit of color to that. We think of our market as global. We don't expend too much thought about which state or which country our sales occur in. Our machine is trained to invest incremental dollar in whichever channel offers the highest ROI at any given moment. So it takes into account um, using machine learning models, likely churn, expected claims, projected upsells, and it derives from these a predictive lifetime value, which it then compares to the anticipated customer acquisition cost in that channel. This results in optimal and increasingly uh, improving LTV to CAC ratios And it also dictates a ranking of products and campaigns that are being promoted based on the ROI for the incremental dollar spend. 
The machine does not take into account whether the most profitable available business using that formula is in New Jersey or in Washington, D.C. or in France. <clears throat> At the moment, um, this formula tends to find more opportunities, more compelling opportunities in the U.S. than the E.U. And so long as that is the case, our growth will skew left. So while we continue to grow in Europe, that is not at the moment where most of our profitable opportunities lie and therefore not where our growth is most pronounced. I do expect that the same calculus will yield different answers over time and um, as markets mature and as efficiencies get developed, we might find ourselves skewing more to the right in that regard. Um, in terms of expanding into new markets um, like the UK or Asia, I'd say a couple of things. The first is that we have an expansive vision for lemonade. Uh, we think that our cocktail value proposition of great value, strong values, and delightful product is a cocktail that enjoys universal appeal. And therefore, it's a question of when, not if, with regard to those new geographies. The second thing I'd say is that in deciding when to launch more markets um, and in which order to sequence them, we follow much the same algorithm as we use to determine where to invest our incremental dollar. We are very ambitious for Lemonade, but we try to temper that with the discipline of ensuring that we invest our energies where they will be most impactful, and that really drives the prioritization and the roadmap. I hope that gives some insight into how we think about our global expansion and prioritization of different geographies in terms of growth and in terms of launch. But I'm afraid I'm not going to announce here today which countries we plan to launch when. I'm sure, Neil and Jordan, that you'd appreciate those specifics, but I trust you value even more by not tipping our hand to our competitors. So I hope this will um, be a satisfactory answer to your question. Which brings me to the question on new products. We have been very busy with new products, uh, continue to be. For the first four years of our existence, we had only homeowners' products, and in our fifth year, we saw a profusion of products. We launched PET, we launched LIFE, and um, as I intimated, we have more in the oven. Much as I did, though, when talking about global expansion, here, too, I'm happy to talk about our guiding principles while remaining intentionally vague or almost evasive about the specifics. So. As with new geographies, our ambition for new products is expansive. We want to cater to all our customers' needs and to become attractive to an ever-growing universe of customers, and new products are really an essential component in achieving this. In our S1 uh, our prospectus for our IPO, we included an illustration of our prototypical lemonade customer. We showed a young woman who joins at age 25, and all she has is a bike and some personal belongings, and then we showed how we could grow with her as she goes through predictable life cycle events, as she collects pets and human dependents, and as she adds valuables and vehicles and homes. And our product roadmap is developing in the service of this strategic vision of ours. And in terms of car insurance in general, and the Tesla-related question in particular, let me say the following. The entire mobility space is going through unparalleled dislocations, um, ride-sharing, is increasingly competing with car ownership, while autonomous vehicles promise to transform the nature of how risk is allocated in the car industry. If a Tesla crashes while on autopilot, that could arguably be characterized as a faulty product issue rather than a faulty driver issue, and they therefore may be better handled under rubric of product warranty than um, car insurance. So this is one of the many revolutions and transformations of the digital age. And these kinds of transformations put incumbents on their back foot. And they create tremendous opportunities for innovation for companies that don't have a legacy business to protect. So we follow these dislocations with keen interests. Um, but for now, that's all I'm going to say on this topic. Um, thank you for that question. Finally, let me um, address Emil's question about crypto and Bitcoin. So crypto and um, DeFi, uh, decentralized finance in general, are very interesting technologies and they enable really very novel businesses and, and business models. To date, we haven't seen compelling applications for blockchain or cryptocurrencies at Lemonade, but 
it's a fast-moving space and we're entirely open and even excited at the prospect of that changing. Um, in terms of our investments, our most high-conviction investment is in LMND, and we plan to deploy as much of our cash into our own business as we can profitably do. Of course, in the meantime, um, we will invest the cash that we don't need right now, um, but we certainly don't plan to make sizable investments in assets as volatile as Bitcoin. Uh, the opportunities in front of us are massive, and we want to keep our powder dry and dependably available. Uh, hopefully, and all that, that makes sense to you. And with that, um, I would now like to turn the call back over to the operator who can perhaps rejoin the call with Q&A instructions, um, as we'll be happy to now take questions from our friends on the street as well. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star than one on your touchstone phone. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star and two. At this time, we'll pause momentarily to assemble our roster. Our first question is from Mike Zeranowski from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, first question, I'm curious um, um, about the uh, – Exciting new product launch later this year. Um, does the 21, 2021 guidance contemplate uh, uh, that product launch? And also, kind of curious, does the 21 guide contemplate whether you think there'll be any potential changes to the reinsurance program, maybe as a result of this kind of black swan um, Texas event? Yeah, hey, Mike, can you hear us? I'll take. Uh, each each of those in turn. So the, the way we are approaching the guidance and our planning uh, is similar to how we have in the past with, with new efforts. And so in the, in the guidance for the full year, you'll see essentially all, all or nearly all of the investment and expense that we plan to make to both drive the current business, drive new growth, as well as build new products, um, those products that are already in the market and those products that we plan to bring to the market. Uh, on the top line, we do not uh, load in 100% of what we believe the opportunity is in terms of uh, premium and growth. So we're a little conservative on the top line and uh, also conservative on the bottom line. In terms of uh, new products not yet announced, uh, the impact on the year is uh, rounds to essentially zero. So I think what we're telling the world in terms of our focus investment is we're leaning in. We've, we've raised additional capital. We feel that we can uh, accelerate some things, and so we've really accelerated the cost and the investment in the hiring and, and people efforts. Um, but because we don't yet really have hard clarity around launch dates or impact, um, we've not built in much from the top-line perspective. But um, that, that's kind of how we approach the, the guidance. And from a reinsurance perspective, you know, the, the, the Texas situation, what it's done for the people on the ground, it's, it's still very much in progress in terms of the, the, the accounting and the, and the processing of what the ultimate impact will be. Um, these things, while the exact um, circumstances that happen in Texas are not uh, perfectly modeled or perfectly expected, these things are expected, and it's part of how the reinsurers go about placing their business, and, and it's really a long-term relationship with us. So currently we have no expectation that, but this, the, the Texas occurrence, will, will dramatically change uh, our, our long-term view of the value of reinsurance and what we ultimately pay. Um, our reinsurance partners are really focused on growth and long-term profit and all the things that, that I think we've delivered uh, really strong performance on thus far, and I, I expect that to continue. That's helpful. My final follow-up is um, a stat you put into the shareholder letter that I thought was um, very positive. You talked about um, – retention rate improvement. I was hoping maybe you can unpack that or give us a little more color. It, you know, that's a lot of uh, improvement. Do you think that's for the entire por existing portfolio, or do you think it's for kind of new business you're writing that's, um, that has more uh, cross-sell and in, in graduation um, rates in it? Yeah, so that's, a, that's a, an important metric that we're tracking internally, and, and as always, we, we – 
uh, strive to share more publicly as we get better data. So we've clearly been focused on retention. Of dollar retention is really a better indicator of the long-term sort of health and, and growth uh, of the value of the business and the value of our customers. So we obviously are focused very um, closely on dollar retention, and that's where we've seen that improvement. We're not yet to the point where we want to bring that, you know, hard metric publicly because we just want to have our arms around that data as it evolves. But we did want to give that indication that what we're seeing internally is, uh, is exactly what we expect to see, is as the book matures and as we see some of the benefit of, of what we call sort of seasoning, meaning, you know, a larger portion of the book ages and, and uh, their key metrics improve, we are seeing that in dollar retention. And then hopefully before too long we'll be able to share more concrete data on that, um, but wanted to at least share that data information. Thank you. The next question is from Mike Phillips from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good morning, Mike. Um, you talked in your letter, and, and you said uh, a kind of a similar uh, comment in, in prior conversations about the product mix and the, and the shift in new business, and, and here you talk about 40% of is new, which is homeowners and pets. Um, and, and, and you give a quote in your letter up from, from prior quarters. Um, I, I guess I was wondering if you'd be willing or – you haven't been in pet very long, so um, I, I'm curious how much of that uh, new business mix is purely from pet versus homeowners, you know, that's something you'd be willing to share. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a combination of both. Um, I think if we look out over the course of the coming quarters, we can see the point coming where less than a majority of our, our business uh, will be renters. And, you know, having started out as primarily renters from a, a dollar perspective, certainly if not, uh, if not from a customer account perspective as well, um, that day is coming. Now, homeowners is larger, it's more mature, we've got more data and, and have made somewhat more progress. But the pet results in just six months have been, have been pretty significant. And so it's, uh, I'm, I'm not going to share a hard number, but it's definitely a combination of the two. Um, in terms of uh, the balance, you know, maybe going forward we can share a little bit more of that, but we're definitely seeing impact from from both of those. Okay. I, I, not, not to put you on the spot, I'm just curious, I guess, the philosophy behind um, when you give your customer account, do you think there will be a day when you give the customer account split by product line? Um, you know, probably not. Uh, it's certainly something we could do, and I, the, the reason for that is, I mean, you clip, but the reason for that is because we'll have so many customers, and we already are seeing this dynamic where customers have multiple policies. And so is someone a pet customer or a home customer? You know, that's something we're factoring in, and as we get a better feel for, for that, um, but that's just a dynamic that we want to make sure people understand is the, the cross-sell benefit and the upsell benefit. But that's something we'll, we'll keep in mind. Okay. Thanks. And I'll bring in these Hey, sorry, yeah, sure. Sorry, hey, Daniel, I just I wanted to interject with another point, which is tangential to your question, and we got some questions over social media today from uh, the paper bag investor and others about the fact that while we saw very robust growth in Q4, we didn't see the same proportion of growth in our customer account, and I thought this was a good place just to, um, to address that. So you're, you're right, we don't break down the customers um, by product. I just want to make the broader point, which is we don't guide for customer count in general. So what we are optimizing for is growth and profitability of our entire book of business. The top-line metric that we use is um, enforced premium, which is really multiplication of how many customers we have times premium per customer. And what our machines are optimizing for is the output of that multiplication. So if we were just optimizing for customer count, we would just sell renters all day long. If we were just optimizing for premium per customer, we would only sell homeowners all day long. It's really the multiplication of the two which produces the best return on investment. And the more markets we have and the more products we have, the more able we are to um, play the arbitrage of seeing where can we get the best return on the dollar invested. And we can love all our children, all our geographies, all our products equally, but the way we allocate dollars to them is based on that formula, so that the machines are constantly looking to optimize for that. And the outcome of that is that in Q4 that we're reporting on now, Q4 2020, we actually spent fewer dollars on marketing than we did during the Q4 of 2019, even though we sold a lot more. 
In fact, we mentioned this in the letter that our efficiencies increased 88% 2020 versus 2019, and that's really how. It's by solving for how do we get the most bang for the buck, and what we are optimizing for is growth of our business in dollar terms and not in policy count or in customer count, which is why that's also what we guide for. So just get that in there. Thanks, Mike. Okay, no, thank you. That's, uh, that's helpful. Thanks for that, Mr. again. Um, Last question for now is on taxes, and appreciate your earlier comments, Daniel, Matt, and clearly the complexity of what's involved there. But I, I guess as you look at that now, EBITDA and the loss ratios that, are, that could come out of this thing. Um, but just in general, are there any lessons that you have learned yet so far on that? Is it's kind of one of the first almost strings to your system, if you will, lessons on adjuster availability or accessibility or anything else in your systems that maybe have been tested for the first time in something new to this magnitude? Yeah, there's some uh, some interesting lessons, and and while this is uh, certainly the first of its magnitude, it's not the first that we've faced. Um, you know, over the over the five years, we've had a, a couple of quarters with, with pretty uh, significant impact, but but there was this one was unique. And one of the things that that we saw was essentially a year's worth of claims in a week. You know, for for a given set of folks, so it was it was one really a test of our ability to muster the team to basically redirect and expand the available hours of the team quickly to keep the close rate significant um, and high. You know, our net promoter score in normal times is something we're very proud of, uh, and it's, it's there for a reason. It, it's a key focus of the business, and we're able to, um, as best we can tell thus far, maintain those very high net promoter scores even through the course of the duress of the, of the Texas event, both for customer support and for claims. Um, we've been able to close a very significant proportion uh, of these claims very quickly, uh, and that's, you know, that, that's really what we're there for, for our customers. Um, we'll see what the, the ultimate impact shapes up to be, but the guidance for the full year and for the first quarter takes into account everything we know and, and the patterns we're seeing and how we see it evolving over the, over the coming days. Um, the team has drilled for this and tested for this. You know, you never quite know until it happens. And um, if you could sort of read our, our internal messaging in Slack, you'd see that while it was put a real strain uh, on the system, it, we sort of passed that test with flying flying colors. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. The next question is from Matt Carletti from JMP. Please go ahead. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Uh, Daniel, I just want to circle back to the, the commentary you just had on um, kind of the machines and, and you know, new customers versus you know, premium per customer. Um, I, I know we're, I'm trying to simplify a, a very complex you know, issue here, but how, how does time you know, fit into that? How, how, when you look at it, does you know, a, a, a potential kind of 25-year-old today that might only be looking for renters but has a lot of long-term potential to, to move up that kind of graduation hill and add a lot of products, you know, be that new customer growth versus, um, you know, somebody that might be renters today, but, you know, they're also, you know, they'll add on pet today as well, but, but, you know, maybe not go much further than that. Yeah. Hey, Matt, it, it's a, it's a great, um, question and it gives me an opportunity to layer a little bit more, um, of the sophistication of the system on top of my earlier comments. So before and I, I kind of said we optimize for ROI and I left it at that, you know, dollars spent towards dollars sold. But actually the machine is doing something far more sophisticated than that and it's um, really in line with, I think, the premise of your question, which is not all dollars sold are born equal. Two customers can come in and both of them spend $100 and one will have a lifetime value of $50,000 because they're going to stay for a long time and increase their premiums. And one can actually have a negative lifetime value because they're going to make a big claim and churn in six months. Um, and the more able we are to predict the lifetime value, the more efficiently we can deploy our, our cash against the, the appropriate or spend the CAC, the, the customer acquisition costs, in a way that optimizes the CAC to LTV ratio. And our data science team has been continuously improving our ability to project lifetime value of a customer based on all the parameters that make a difference. So project, projecting um, charm, projecting upsells, projecting claims, and using all of those um, together. So it's not simply that we say, oh, renters versus homeowners. We're becoming um, um, increasingly nuanced and sophisticated in the machine's ability not only to say France versus New Jersey or homeowners versus renters, 
but to get down to a much greater level of granularity and focus, as your question um, implies, focus on lifetime value rather than on something as crude as geography or product. So all of that is happening, and it's part of the systems that are learning the whole time that we're getting better and better and better at that. Okay, great. And then just one follow-up, if I can, um, on, on loss ratio. You had some discussion in the letter about, um, you know, how on the surface, you know, it looks like there's just a little bit of improvement year over year, but when you when you peel it back, um, you know, there's a new business penalty on, on the new business, and the, the, the lines you had in place a year ago actually have improved performance quite well. Um, and I think that the quote was, I might quote you wrong, but it was something along the lines of you're completely comfortable with the new business penalty. Um, how, how should we read that on the outside? Should we read that as, you know, loss ratios in a good place, expect it largely flat going forward with maybe a little improvement, but, but not, not leaps and bounds as you, as you grow into some of these new products? Would that be a fair takeaway? So maybe I'll say a couple of things, and then, Tim, if you want to um, come in, feel free. The main thrust of the, the, the passage that you're referring to is we, we are very long-term in our thinking. We want to build a, a huge company over time and, and be um, uh, extremely profitable. And we, we think that we are today in a window of opportunity to create really a, a generational company, which is what we're very focused on. Launching new products is something we're getting pretty good at, and we've spoken at some length about the results of the launches for the last six months, and we've already hinted at launches to come. Um, those come with a near-term cost and a long-term profit. And part of the currency that we spend it in is, you'll see that in EBITDA, so part of what we're spending this year is, as I said earlier, we've got more people working on new products than on any of our existing product. Um, but part of it is also going to be in near-term hit-to-loss ratio. So you do expect when you launch new products to see that new uh, um, product uh, um, penalty. And so long as we can see that the underlying data of aging cohorts suggests that the underlying profitability of the business is very strong, we won't be put off by the masking of that underlying profitability because of the near-term uh, penalty that you pay with new products. We're going to optimize for the long-term, not for the short-term. So that's the thrust of it. We're comfortable doing that. We think that's the way you build and long-term sustainable value, and we want our investor base to understand that that is the calculus that we'll be employing and get comfortable with it as well. That said, we do plan and anticipate that we will stay within our long-term guidance, notwithstanding that calculus. So um, Tim made a comment earlier about wanting to stay on a long-term annual, uh, multi-year annual average beneath 75. We think we'll be able to do that, notwithstanding the commentary that I just gave. So, um, yes, we will be suffering higher loss ratios because of that penalty, um, but not to the extent that it would uh, deviate from our long-term plans. Tim, anything to add to that? No, that was great. Thank you. The next question is from Ralph Shackert from William Blair. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking the question. Um, on the call, you talked about launching new products. Maybe if you can just give us a sense, how much easier is it for you to launch this incremental new product, especially with your growing uh, brand awareness, you know, both from the perspective to drive the incremental adoption or perhaps faster adoption with the new products? Maybe just to bolt onto that, as you add these incremental new products, you talked a little bit about you know, LTV to CAC, but just in perspective and how you think about that LTV to CAC ratio you know, uh, projected in the future. Thank you. Um, as I said in my comments, we're gaining confidence in doing exactly that. So, you know, had you asked me that question six months ago, I think we'd have been a little bit more tentative. Um, but we have now got a lot of data on PET, which is um, going very, very well. We're, we're really thrilled with all of the aspects of that, the, the growth, the profitability, the customer satisfaction, the adoption rates and the dynamics between existing customers and new products, so the, the cross-sell dynamics, the fact that it creates new on-ramps, the, the total impact that that has on our LTV to CAC um, across the board. So we are gaining confidence that not only are we able, as I kind of wrote in the, in the beginning of the shareholder letter, to walk and chew gum, we can do this from an operational point of view, but also that the financial impact of doing that is in line or ahead of what we had hoped and expected, and Shai made comments suggesting that, um, although life is still early days, that the early indications are that that will, will follow hopefully a similar trajectory. So we do feel, both operationally and in terms of our financial model, that this is something we 
we should be doubling down on, and indeed, um, it's exactly what we are doing. Um, Tim, do you want to address the LTV to CAC part of that? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. From an LTV to CAC standpoint, I think it's we're seeing what we had had hoped to see, and so um, recently, currently, in the short term, we we believe our our data tells us we're comfortably above two between two and three in terms of LTV to CAC. And we gave indications that we'd like to see it above three, and we think we have a path to see that well above three, and that, and that would be a, a step change, but one that is doable. And we're seeing evidence that, you know, notwithstanding the new business penalty that Daniel just walked through, we're seeing the indication that, that these things are true, that the two key levers are marketing efficiency, and we've seen significant improvement in that over the course of the past 12 to 18 months. And then the other lever is retention um, and the likelihood that a customer becomes a longer-term customer if they have more than, one more than one policy, which we're seeing to be true and borne out by the data, that a customer that's a little bit older and a little bit wealthier is likely to be a longer-term retained customer. And we're seeing that borne out by the data. In fact, if you look at um, the average age of, of different segments of our customers, our overall customer um, average looks around 30. But if you parse that out and start to look at new business, uh, whether it's uh, in, in life insurance or pet insurance or segregated homeowners insurance, for example, you see that number uh, several years higher. Uh, and we know that that correlates to greater wealth and greater need for insurance. And so that's what tells us that we are on track to move the LTV cap from above two to above three. And we'll, we'll continue to share that, but the, the underlying data is very supportive of that. Great. That's helpful. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Tim. The next question is from Ron Josie from JNC Securities. Please go ahead. Great. Thanks for taking the question. I have, uh, I have two, please. First, Shai, you mentioned, uh, you know, just a month in on life and you're doing a stage event for, or stage launch for the product. Can you just provide more details here on what you're looking for as life rolls out nationally? And, and, you know, are you really starting looking at Lemonade's existing million customers? Are there any similarities, lessons for the pet launch into life? And then the second question is just on growing awareness. Um, I think in the letter we talked about just broader, build a bigger overall brand awareness. So, um, Daniel, can you talk a little bit more about how your marketing strategy evolves? I'm assuming you go more national, but then to Matt's question earlier, you talked about going really after the LTV. So maybe talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about brand marketing and just overall marketing um, overall. Thank you. Hey, Ron. Good morning. Thanks for that. Um, I'll try and tackle um, both. So, Shai spoke a little bit about life, but he was also careful to say that it's really going to be a few months until we put a pedal to the metal on life. Um, and this is a complex product that we're doing in partnership with uh, with another carrier. We don't ha we don't own a life insurance carrier, so these are, are complex partnerships. Um, and we want to take our time and make sure that all the integrations and all of the data sets that we're using and the entirety of the customer flow is up to the standards that we, we hold ourselves to. As you know, with um, insurance in general, you can't always beta test to these kinds of things. They're highly regulated products. You can't uh, pretend to sell insurance. You have, to, you have to test it in the market. And as we said from the very beginning, we, we did something of a cautious launch of life insurance. We have not promoted this. We have not put marketing dollars behind it. We're using these months to make sure that the uh, um, user experience is delightful and and the entirety of the technology stack is operating as we would expect it to. And what I also intimated is that so far so good. Uh, in fact, we've been pleasantly surprised that notwithstanding the fact that we really haven't put any marketing dollars behind this and we've been very focused on customer experience and the, the technology, notwithstanding all of that, we are seeing conversion rates that are very strong and interest rates that are very strong. Uh, albeit it's, it's small and little data at this point. So um, we are seeing similar dynamics to PET in the sense that we are seeing about half of the business come from existing customers and about half from newcomers. Um, and um, we're seeing strong uh, premiums per customer, strong conversion rates. Um, but I, I think, Ron, with your permission, we'll, we'll leave it there because we want to share real data once we have real volumes and once we've been able to scale this a bit more. And we're still a few months um, from doing that, and we want to manage our own expectations and yours and always prioritize the customer experience 
and before the growth. So we're going to spend the next couple of months getting that um, tied down to, to our satisfaction before we invest on that. Um, in terms of the marketing, um, we have evolved. We, we continue to evolve. So the part of the um, theme of today's uh, announcement and, and call has been about how we've really moved from being monoline to multi-line. And, that begins to morph the message about the company from offering a product to offering insurance more broadly. So rather than saying, you know, insurance for renters or insurance for homeowners, uh, messages that we use, um, and um, maybe I'll leave it at that just in, in kind of broad strokes, but the, the specifics are things that we're still rolling out, so I'm going to um, pause there. Understood. Thank you, Daniel. The next question is from Ross Sandler from Berkeley's. Please go ahead. Uh, hey, guys. Um, two questions. So if, if uh, non-renters is a third of the business today, you know, where could that be in five years? Uh, and then the second question is, is usually when a subscription business is seeing higher LTV and better retention, uh, they would lean in more heavily on marketing. and you guys are kind of doing the opposite. You've seen all this efficiency, uh, and you're talking about, you know, the three-to-one LTV to CAC. But so when should we expect you to lean back in is the question. And I guess long-term, what's the right way to think about uh, marketing as a percent of uh, as a percent of IFP or, or uh, GEP, whichever uh, ratio you guys are thinking about internally? Thanks a lot. Sure. Hey, hey Ross. Um, so, take, take those two in order. On the on the renters question, as a proportion of the business, if if you think about the, the overall market uh, in in the U.S., the renters proportion is relatively you know, it's clearly the smaller portion, less than ten percent of the total market. Um, I think we'll skew renters for a fair bit just because of the origin of the business. But I think over the period you're referring to, multiple years, three, four, five, six years or so, we would sh continue the shift we're seeing now and skew more towards the overall market size. Um, you know, the home market is is uh, 10 or 20 times the size of the rental market. Uh, uh, the life market is probably 100% or 150% of that in aggregate, so it, the, the numbers get pretty large pretty fast in these newer products that we're launching. Um, so I'd expect that to, that to continue. Um, and there's also the dynamic where we're tapping naturally. You've got renters becoming homeowners, and so it's, it's us acquiring the business as well as the, the shift within the business as our customers age and, and season. Um, in terms of the marketing, the second question in terms of marketing, you know, why don't we spend more? It's always the question we kind of face ourselves day to day as we're optimizing how much we spend, how much we invest. Um, we've, we've made a, um, you know, general commitment to not go out and acquire unprofitable business. Um, but we've got the capability to really lean in and test new areas. So I think we're, we're, when you look at our marketing efficiency overall, when you dig into the details on that overall, you've got uh, pieces of that that's much more efficient, much less efficient, and the less efficient areas are important for testing and gathering new data and learning. Um, I think we have the opportunity to spend more now, and I think the guidance uh, for next year uh, suggests, you know, tells you that we're leaning in versus um, uh, kind of reaping the benefits and, and, and not growing quite as fast. So that is something we, we balance. I don't know, Daniel, if you want to add anything on the, the, the willingness to invest at a, at a greater pace, but that's, that's usually the guideline we've been following is the underlying profitability of each of those customers. The next question is from Jason Helstein from Oppenheimer. Please go ahead. Um, I'll just do just maybe can you dissect that last comment even further? So obviously you've given us guidance. So as we're thinking about kind of like getting to that 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 EBITDA guidance, you know, uh, maybe help us understand how much leaning into marketing um, versus pricing policies versus other product changes, and and how much of that is driven by your desire to just you know continue to increase the, the mix of homeowners versus other things. So um, I know you just kind of commented, maybe if there's any more elaboration, 
And the second question, if we look at the um, incremental IFP dollars quarter to quarter, and we divide that by net ad, um, it was up 72% year over year and an acceleration from the 40% in third quarter. So maybe dissect this a bit. I mean, um, how much of this is a function of, again, kind of um, pet versus homeowner versus rental? Just, um, you know, we want to dissect that a little bit. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, the the best data to point you to is is, is the, the impacts that drive increase in premium per customer. That really captures the the story and what's going on there is you know year on year twenty percent increase in premium per customer. That's been stable and and improving actually. Uh, you know, typically if nothing else, all else is equal, you'd expect that to decline somewhat. But because we're launching new products, because they're at a higher price point, and because they're working quite well. We're seeing a upward pressure on the premium per customer number. In terms of the relative impacts, you know, two-thirds of that increase is driven by the shift in the mix of the products. Uh, there's a greater proportion of that mix shift that's driven by home uh, than by pet, but the pet component is, is significant. There's probably three times as much of that driven by home than pet. Um, so it, it definitely is driven by uh, if you think about the price points, the, the homeowner's price point is two or more times what the pet uh, price point is. So there's some some logic to that. So I'd expect these to continue. There's no guarantee that premium per customer increases forever, uh, but the dynamic is clearly positive and clearly uh, uh, upward pressure on that. And that's really the you know when you enter the market as we did in an unloved area that we can make profitable, the renters market, and then launch new products as we have and encourage customers enable customers to graduate as we have, it, it creates this metric, which is just a great way to capture the business. So I think uh, when Daniel noted, you know, customer count is interesting, but it's really the combination of customer count and the mix shift and the premium customer. That drives your enforced premium, and that's that's how we're managing the business. So I would expect more, more of the same uh, over the coming year. Uh, life is a wild card only because it's new, and the, the data is very is, is nascent, um, but the early indications are quite good. Uh, we've check the box in that, as with pet, we're able to sell to new customers as well as cross-sell existing customers. Life, we're seeing the same thing, new customers buying this product as well as existing customers. So that, that's a great early indication. Um, we'll uh, report more in the coming quarters. The next question is from Arvind Ravnani from Piper Sandler. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my question, and uh, congrats, congrats on a good, good quarter. Um, you know, one of the things you indicated was uh, pet insurance achieved uh, marketing efficiency in just uh, six months uh, versus years for your home products. Uh, now, how much of this is because of the specific product type versus you know, your broader scale or your brand or data insights that you have? Uh, you know, what I'm really trying to understand here is, you know, should we expect this quick improvement in marketing efficiency uh, in other products um, you're, you're planning to, to launch or is it just specific to, to pet insurance? I think it's a little of both. Um, you know, the Lemonade was a different company on the day we launched pet insurance than we were when we launched Lemonade, to be sure. Uh, you know, an extraordinary uh, level of progress in terms of the, the data we collect and our knowledge and our understanding of that data um, and our capabilities. You know, our, our, our people, our folks, our growth marketing teams, all of those um, much more uh, adept four years in. But on the other hand, pet is a tricky business. There have been pet insurance companies around for a very long time. Some of them are very good. We brought a lemonade approach to pet and the way we talk about pets and the way we talk about the service we provide is dramatically different. Anybody who's been through the workflow of us versus our competitors uh, uh, has hopefully seen that as a distinct difference, and that's why I think we've been able to succeed in that um, with both new customers as well as cross-selling customers. Uh, so I think uh, for next products, for, for life and, and subsequent products, I think we'll see some of that. Uh, benefit that we saw in PET, but that, not necessarily all. You, you get all of it when you design a product that's fundamentally different. And when Shai talks about optimizing life, what we're really saying is we, we want to guarantee that it's fundamentally different than other experiences in the market. And, and launching a new product after life, you know, that, that's the fundamental question. It worked with PET, 
and our expectation is that we'll uh, we'll bring new products when they're when we're able to say that it's fundamentally different, and we'll see the marketing efficiency come with that. Uh, terrific, terrific. And uh, just a quick follow-up question. You know, uh, when I just compared this year versus last year, um, you know, you, you had your you know hands hands full. I mean, you know, notwithstanding a pandemic, you know, there's, there's uh, you know you know product launches that you you got under your belt. Uh, you know, kind of nice, nice uh, kind of scaling, scaling of the business, and uh, you know, you know, by all means, like a very, very successful, you know, 2020. But, but if you look at like 21 or the next, I don't know, one to two years, w- 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 what are some of the big, big sort of priorities that uh, that you have for for the overall business? The way that I would think about it is um, I think 2020 was an interesting test uh, of a number of things, you know, some some unexpected negatives and some extraordinary positives. And I think, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't really thank the the people who drove that. It wasn't the people on this call. It was 600 people uh, and change around the world who delivered that, uh, along with the, the, the capital support of our investors. But those are the folks who really deserve the credit for what we were able to accomplish in 2020. And I, I would point you back to, to Daniel and Shai's comments about what are those 600 people doing? Uh, we've got the largest uh, internal team to date working on things that are new, uh, things that we have not yet launched. And that's what is exciting for the business is not, you know, did we have a great year, although that is, is pretty exciting and we do a little bit of back padding. It's what's coming next. So, you know, if you kind of walk our uh, virtual halls, I think the focus is on, Great job, but what's coming next? I think we have to wrap thank you. there, given given the time. But thank you so much, Arvind. This concludes the question and answer session. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect. <laughs>